Well, y'all have done a good job this morning, and I love that hymn. I'm very excited about the Gettys being here. I have said to you before, I think they are writing the, uh, the best hymns that have been written in the last hundred years. And uh, so I'm very excited about this evening, and I know that you will be here. Recently, we have witnessed the devastation and the suffering of the earthquake in Haiti. When we see such suffering, when we see such things, it always stirs our heart. In fact, last Sunday at the end of the service, I mentioned that as you were leaving, we would receive an offering to buy tents for those who were suffering. And you gave $11,000 to buy tents last week on the way out the door. In fact, I was told this morning that our special ed department gave, I think, 260-something dollars because our, because our hearts are moved. But then after our hearts are stirred, we, we then ask a question. There's always a question when we see such suffering about fairness. Why do these things happen? Why is it that people suffer? I don't think that we are troubled so much if we think the one who is suffering was a bad person because there is a sense in which we would say, well, that was a bad person and that's to be expected. But when we believe the person who is suffering to have been a good person or we see the suffering of innocent children, then that causes some conflict concerning our theology. David Hume, the 18th century agnostic philosopher, wrote, If God is able to take the hurt away, but is not willing, he is a malevolent evil God. If God is willing, but he is not able, he is a weak, impotent God. If he's both willing and able, why doesn't he do something about it? We may not verbalize such questions, but surely... We struggle with them. If God is a loving God and a powerful God, then why does he allow such things to happen? Is God all-powerful? Is God all-loving? Then if he is, this does not seem fair to us, and there are answers that are suggested as to why suffering takes place. There are those who tell us, well, the reason people suffer, the reason people go through such difficult times is because they don't have the faith. And if they had adequate faith, then they would not suffer. So the reason then they suffer is because of a lack of faith or a lack of godliness in their life. There are other people who would say, no, that's really not what it is. God has willed that it be so, or God has at least allowed it to be so. And we may not understand it, but God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So St. Augustine says that there is a greater good. I may not understand what I'm going through. I may not understand why I am suffering as I am, but there will be a greater good that comes out of it. To be candid with you, neither one of those answers gives a lot of comfort to me. Because it seems to me in one instance it is my fault that I suffer and in the other instance it is God's fault that I suffer. Very simply, I believe that we suffer, we go through the things that we do simply because we live in a fallen world. 
And the Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So according to what the Apostle Paul is saying there, that creation groans, that creation suffers. Now, creation is innocent in this. It had nothing to do with it. It simply is the victim of man's disobedience. But nevertheless, the Bible says that creation groans, creation suffers. And then he goes on in that text and says, we ourselves groan, we are not exempt from suffering. So... It may not be satisfying to you, but it is what I believe, that we live in a fallen world. And as a result of this fallen world, we suffer. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, a story in our continued series from the Old Testament of some people who were suffering, and perhaps we will learn something about it. Second Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse number 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria... And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Now look over chapter 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? These obviously were dark and challenging days in Samaria. There was a famine, the Scripture says in chapter 6, verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver, a fourth of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. It was a time in the city where man and animals were starving. In fact, there were only two horses left in the city. They had eaten the rest of them. It says there in verse number 25 and verse number 26 that the city was besieged. The word besieged that is used there means surrounded. It means that they were cut off. There was an embargo against the city, and so supplies could not get in. There was no way for supplies to come to the people. So the Bible says there was a famine, that they were starving to death. They were suffering economically from tremendous uh, inflation. The story says there that 
food was so scarce, a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels, about $50. In fact, uh, because food was so scarce, donkey head soup was a delicacy. And so the Bible says that this was a terrible time for them, but even worse than this, it says that they were practicing cannibalism. Not only were they suffering physically, but they also were depressed in spirit. The leaders felt powerless in chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press. So when the woman cried out to the king, he said, What can I do? If God doesn't help you, then what can I do? There is no food. There is nothing here. There is famine. It has been cut off. What can I do? And the citizens had become depressed and cynical. Good news was announced there in chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord tomorrow about this time, A shekel, a fine flour shall be sold. A measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. So he... He said, look, there's some good news. Tomorrow this is all going to straighten out. Tomorrow you're going to have plenty of food. Good news. But how did the people respond? Look at chapter 7, verse number 2. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He did not believe that it was going to happen. So they have a famine. This is a difficult time of suffering for the people of Samaria. Elisha makes a proclamation that tomorrow the famine is going to end. But because the people are suffering, now then they are depressed and they are without hope. And so he says the only way this could happen is if the windows of heaven were open. So we see the suffering of man. But suffering usually, I think, leads to skepticism, or perhaps oftentimes leads to skepticism, and we resign ourselves to whatever will be, will be. We are suffering. We're going through a difficult time. It seems that we don't have the answers. We don't have relief. And so then we become skeptical, and we just say, well, whatever will be, will be. Now, that is the easiest response. The easiest response when you're going through a time of suffering a time of difficulty, a time that you do not understand. The easiest response is to do nothing. So there in chapter 7, verse 3, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. They said, why do we sit here until we die? So here was an option for these four lepers. Given the situation, they said, we can sit here and complain We can do nothing. That was an option that was available to them. I mean, after all, what could four lepers do, honestly? The world is falling apart for them. What could four lepers do to correct things? So they said, we can can sit here. Skepticism doing nothing is an easy response, and it is a temptation certainly for the church. We know what the Lord has told us to do, do we not? He has told us that we are to take the gospel into the world. We are to share the gospel, although we know that. But our response today too often is, well, people are not interested today. In fact, I've read that in articles that have been written. It is a different day. It is a different time. People are not interested in the gospel today. They don't respond to the gospel today. The things that that used to be true are not true today. And so there is no reason for us to attempt to share the gospel, not in an effective way, because people are not interested. It's a different day. 
Someone wrote, it's not that Christianity has been tried and failed, it has never been tried. But that is a response. See, when we are going through those times that we don't understand, it is easy for us to do nothing, to simply say, people are not responsive today, they're not interested. And then if someone says, well, let's do something, then someone else shouts, well, it costs too much, or this is not a good time, or it's too hard to do. Did you know that was exactly the response of the Israelites when they were going to rebuild the temple? In fact, the Scripture says in Haggai 1-2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So there is always that temptation when it is time for us to do something, when the days are difficult and we need more than ever to rise up and do something. There is the tendency, there is the temptation to say, well, it's not a good time for that. That's also true for individuals, not just the church, but for individuals. Whenever you're going through trying times, difficult times, there is the temptation that I just do nothing. For instance, how much time do we honestly spend complaining about politics? I mean, you look like you do not, but I know you do. We spend a lot of time complaining about politics, complaining about politicians. You know, they're not interested in their constituents. There's not any of them that are any good and all that stuff. But then let me ask you a question. Do you get involved in changing things? Do you get involved in changing? We complain about education. We say that, you know, education is, is, uh, is not effective and our kids are not learning and they're not learning the right things and all that. And so we sit and complain. But let me ask you a question. Are you involved in it? Parents, are you involved with your teachers and with your children in education, what they are learning? Are you involved in it? Are you running for school board? Are you teaching? Are you doing those things? Are you involved in it? See, it's just easier for us to sit and complain and do nothing. We talk about the, the morals or the Im, immorality that is in our society today, but are you doing anything to make it different? The easiest response is to do nothing. When times are challenging, when times are hard, the easiest thing for us to do is to do nothing. But it is also the costliest response. I grew up on a farm. I remember being... Out in a field somewhere and a plow had been left out or equipment had been left out and it had been there for a period of time. You know what happens to it when it's left unattended or unused for a period of time? Yeah, rust. That's what happens when something is not used. It rusts. It is a costly response. So in verse number 3 of chapter 7, they say, why do we sit here until we die? They said, if we just sit here, then we're going to die. It is a costly response to do nothing. If we just sit and complain and yet we do not work to change things, that is a costly response. What did Jesus tell us? Well, he said that you are to be the salt and you are to be the light. He was saying that you are to be salt, a preservative in a world that is corrupt. You are to be light in a world of spiritual darkness. And that is in the emphatic tense, which means that you and you alone are the salt. There's no salt except for believers. 
You and you alone are the light. That is emphatic as well. So there is no light except for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if we do not start being the salt and the light, we're going to lose our country. If we don't start being salt and light, we're going to lose our schools. And parents, if you are not salt and light in your family, then you are going to lose your family. It is a costly response. We can look things, look at things as they are and say, well, I'm not going to do anything and just sit and complain, but it is a costly response. Now, if you decide, well, I'm not content to do that, I am going to rise up and do something, then there is a risk involved. Chapter 7, verse number 4. If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. The lepers, reasoning about their situation, and they said, if we... If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go to the city, we're going to die. If we go over to the enemy, chances are we're going to die. But there was a possibility of life. You see, when we do something, then there is a possibility. When we resign ourselves to doing nothing, there is the probability of death. But when we say, I'm going to do something, then there's a possibility. We face the same risk, don't we? I was praying about this scripture and thinking about it this last week. And as I, I, I did, I, I thought about all of the things we complain about, all the things that worry us in society. And what are we going to do? You know what I decided? We are not going to do nothing. In fact... Um, May the 23rd is Global Day of Prayer. People, believers all over the world gather to pray. Willie Cruz, some of you know him, came by to see me recently, and he was asking about our involvement in the Global Day of Prayer. And I said, well, Willie, tell me what it is. And he said, well, what we would like to do is to rent a Carolina, um, what is it? The Colonial Center the Colonial, the, has 19,000 seats down there. And he said, we would like to rent that and ask the people to come together on the 23rd after church. I said, well, what's the program? He said, well, there's no program. He said, it's just we're going to come together and pray. He said, uh, we'll probably have you know, somebody to get up and lead the people in praying for the city. And then somebody else get up and lead the people in praying for the state and you know, various things. I listened to him and I said, well, Willie, look, you have no program to promote. You have no personality to promote. And you've got a 19,000-seat venue there. So if that works, it has to be of God. And if there's a possibility, I want to be involved. Because if, if, that, if that auditorium becomes a sanctuary of prayer, then God did it. Because there's no program, there's no personality. It's just God's people recognizing our need of God and coming together to pray. And I said, I, I want to be involved in that. We will not do nothing. Suffering usually leads to skepticism and then 
Skepticism turns to selfishness. There is a tendency when we become skeptical about life, we become skeptical about society, that we turn inward to protect ourselves and we become selfish. And so look at chapter 7, verse number 5. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. So the lepers made a decision, we are not going to sit here and die. And they came to the camp of the Arameans and no one was there. Well, what did they do? Look at verse number 8. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. They were starving. So when they got there, they found some food that had been left over, and so they sat down and indulged themselves. But look as it continues. And carried from their silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them, and they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Momentarily, they forgot about the needs of others. They satisfied their own need, but then they forgot that there were others in the same condition, so they began to hoard or to hide what they had found. You see, folks, when we are in such times as this, we have the tendency to turn inward. That is true uh, for us as individuals, that I'm going to protect mine, I'm going to get my family, I'm going to get them in the right place, I'm going to protect them, but not concerned about other people. We even have that tendency and temptation within the church that we are going to become an isolated monastery, that we are going to protect ourselves from the world. When Jesus said that we are to be the salt and the light, we are to be in the world, not of the world. But we want, and I understand it because I have the same temptation, I want to protect myself from the danger that is out there. I want to protect my family from those things that are ungodly. And so there is the, the desire to withdraw. And we become selfishness, and that must be rejected. You'll see there in chapter 7, verse number 9, Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They said, This is not right for us to do this, nor is it right for us. My friend, you and I have been given the good news, the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have been given the good news of the gospel. And it is my belief that primarily we are suffering today and going through some of the things that we are going through today because we have been silent when it comes to the gospel. Don't be fearful of the world. Don't withdraw from opportunity to tell others about Jesus Christ. Don't isolate yourself when you are to be salt and light. Get out there. Get in the midst of it. It is not right, as they said, for us not to share the good news, and it is not right for us not to. As the people of God, we are to help each other. When I was a boy... My grandparents lived in California, so we used to go out there every summer to visit family. And we would go to uh, the, the park, I forget what it is, the park where they have the redwood trees. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're gigantic, large trees, gigantic trees. Of course, coming from where I did, when the tallest tree we had was about that tall, you go out there and see those. They're probably not as big as I remember them being, but they were big trees. I was reading about the redwoods later and discovered that their roots don't go deep. Well, then how do they survive? 
The roots are intertwined with the roots of other redwood trees. They help each other. And and that's what we are to do. We are to be involved. We are to extend sympathy. And as I look at these lepers, they were positive in spirit. In verse number 9 of chapter 7, they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. We're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They said, surrender is wrong. We're not going to sit here and die. Selfishness is wrong. It is not right for us to hoard But sympathy is right. We are to invest in other people. They were responsible in action because fear paralyzes and faith mobilizes. And so they acted in faith and they were blessed. They were blessed in chapter 7, verse number 8. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank. Then they shared the good news in verse number 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans. Behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied, the donkeys tied, the tents just as they were. They shared the good news, and they became a blessing. Then in verse number 16, So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. You see... They were blessed, they shared the good news, and they became a blessing. I want to do that, don't you? Let me very rapidly conclude, and I want to conclude with a spiritual application. Because there is a spiritual famine in some of our lives. Some of you would say that in your own life. I'm, I'm experiencing a spiritual famine in my life. Well, there are three options available to you in dealing with it. It seems to me one is to retreat. And you can return to an old way of life. You can return to old habits, old sins, and so forth. You can fail to keep your devotional time, just not spend time with the Lord in in His Word and in prayer and all those things. You can forsake the church. But that is one option that is available to you. You can, you can retreat. You know, I mean, this is a tough time. I don't understand what is happening to me and so forth, and so I'm going to retreat. Or secondly, you can remain. You can say, well, you know, I'm just going to stay where I am. I'm just going to sit right here, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to risk anything. I'm just sort of going to sit right here. I don't like what's happening, but I'm going to sit right here. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm just not going to get that involved with the Lord. Or thirdly, you can run to the Lord. And if you do, you'll find security. Security is in Him. You run to the Lord, you'll find strength. God will give you the strength that you need. And there are some of you who need His strength today. You're facing some situations and you need the strength of the Lord. He'll give you the strength. You go to Him, you'll find supply. That He will supply for your needs. I read the story about a woman who was on a ship crossing Lake Michigan. And as they were going across the lake, there was a storm that came. The thunder was roaring and the lightning was flashing and the winds were blowing. And she became a little frightened and she began looking at it and she saw these jagged rocks that were sticking up out of the water. So she went to the captain and and said to him, do you know where all the rocks are? He said, no, but I know where it's safe. Folks, you look out today and you see a lot of jagged rocks out there. And the wind is blowing 
and the lightning is flashing and you become fearful as to what is happening in our world. Let me tell you something. Jesus is where it's safe. You'll find safety in Him. You'll find strength in Him. You'll find supply in Him. I don't know what you're going through. But I know where safety is. It is in Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you know the Lord? Are you walking with Him today? I pray that you are. Our gracious Father and God, we come to you and thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is sufficient for our every need, adequate for our every need. Lord, I lift up to you these today, and I know that some of them are struggling. And I pray, Father, for those who have never been saved, that today they'll commit their life to you. I pray, Father, for those who have other needs in their life, that they'll come to you, that they will decide that I'm willing to take the risk, I'm willing to put it all on the line. Father, I just pray that today there will be a commitment of life to you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and the choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Christ today, would you commit your life to him? If you're looking for a church home, our doors open to you. We'd love to have you. But I trust that today you'll run to Christ because you'll find what you need. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.